Welcome to the inaugural episode of MVP, Minimum Viable Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Simon Fugel on the show. Simon is a product manager at Freelancer.com. And if you don't know, Freelancer is the biggest crowdsourcing marketplace in the world with 45 million users across the globe. I'm super excited for Simon to share his unique journey from being a door-to-door salesperson to being a product manager at a global tech company. After that, we'll talk to him about the overlap between sales and product management, recent trends in the product space, some learnings, and his experience of recently launching Freelancer Verified at Freelancer.com. To wrap up, we'll take a step back and talk to Simon about his hobbies and how they were able to leverage the product mindset to run fantastic art shows every year. Hey, Simon. Thanks for being on the show. Happy Thanksgiving. How are you doing today? Hey, Kush. Thanks. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Uh, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Super excited for our conversation. Yeah, it should be pretty exciting. Let's jump right in. Um, so tell me about your product journey. How did you become a product manager? Um, so I have, a, I think, a unique journey into product in that, you know, if I really want to go back to the beginning, there was a point. Absolutely. Oh, like the original, like beginning, beginning. Okay. Yeah, let's um, do it. So my dad was in sales. And when I was just out of high school, my dad gave me a book and it's called How to Sell Anything to Anyone by Joe Girard, the Guinness World Record holder of being the best salesman in the world. The guy sold like old Chrysler's back in the day. He sold like 16,000 in a year, right? So I ended up reading a lot of books on sales. Like that just became like my go-to reading genre. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, like I had this like goal of trying to be the world's greatest salesman, mm-hmm. whatever that really meant. And so I ended up uh, eventually going and becoming a door-to-door salesman because mm-hmm. I figured that's like the best practice you can get. Like I'm, I'm very much like practice oriented. Yeah. And from there, I was like top salesperson in the country after like a few months. And it was a terrible job. It was like gruesome. Like you get, it was a really steep learning curve. Um, I worked for a subseller of Shaw and we sold phone lines to businesses. So phone lines and internet to businesses. And it was basically like walk in cold and try to convince people to switch providers basically, right? You went to like 40 businesses every single day. So mm-hmm. it was a partic- particularly difficult task and it's like straight commission, right? So that was when I turned 25 and then from the age of 25 till I don't know when I was on straight commission. Um, so eventually I moved into, eventually I just saw like an, a job ad to sell BMWs. So I went mm. to the interview and it was a group interview and I just like, you know, I did great in the interview from recollection. And then I had an interview with like three of the managers there the next day. And I was just like so arrogant in my interview because like if you're selling stuff door to door, you can mm-hmm. effectively sell anything you want. Like there's no harder job. And I knew that and they knew that. So anyways, at the end of the interview, they're like, do you have any more questions? I'm like, yeah, when do I start? <laughs> and they just looked at me and they're like, you start on Monday. And I was like, sweet. Okay. So then my like my manager just spent like my GM took three days off to train me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, number one, like very quickly, like second or third month in at like my own parking spot beside the GM. And like I went down that path for a little while, um, just like selling more expensive things to more expensive people, basically. And like, I always felt like I needed to go something like I had learned all the lessons mm-hmm. and I needed to expand my abilities from selling like one item to one person to selling mm-hmm. one item to many people. 
So the idea was actually, I was looking for a copywriting job. So I like put together a copywriting portfolio. I worked on it for probably a year. I would like make fake ads. Like I grew up watching commercials and infomercials and I still to this day love infomercials. Like people that skip advertising, I don't understand, you know, (laughs) the best part. And so I was looking for a copywriting job, interviewed at a bunch of places, but I had no like real official experience copywriting so i eventually like i applied to freelancer on a whim i was just like you know it's a like junior account manager and i like i like to practice when i interview so like, mm-hmm. i go to interviews just to like learn how to interview better and i went there for a practice interview i wore like a suit and tie like imagine me dressing in like in a suit and tie uh, my nicest clothes to this interview yeah i don't know Brenda's emailed me after the interview and she's like nice to meet you and I was like, yeah, okay, I'll take the job. Like, I didn't even think about it. I was like, why not? Why not? Let's just some new things, right? So I started a freelancer as a recruiter. Mm-hmm. And so that was like my official transition into tech was still in sales. Mm-hmm. And and at that point, I was just kind of like, I thought freelancer was a cool place because I thought that maybe I could build my portfolio like a freelancer. So I was going to like learn how the freelancer system works, how you can be a freelancer. And, you know, maybe you do copywriting as a freelancer. You know what I mean? Like, that seemed like the, the what I was going to take away from freelancing. Is I was going to learn okay. how to be my own freelancer and essentially go down this path. Sorry. So, so you kind of wanted to uh, learn how the freelancer.com platform works so you, you would understand how you could you know put yourself better out there in a better way and potentially get a lot of freelancer kicked out of it. Yeah, I was just trying to like really... I knew I needed to build a portfolio. Like that was high on my mind. And I like went to school for art. So I also have like a design portfolio. So I really felt like making ads was really up my alley. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. And, you know, it seems like a weird thing, but I just think that advertising, it's like my one of my favorite things. I think good advertising is amazing. If you ever go to London, they use a very different style of advertising. It's all long copy. So all the mm-hmm. ads have like a paragraph. Like you never see that over here, but it's super, like super interesting. Anyways, so I was planning on building a portfolio and then I just like got asked to manage the PFP. Mm-hmm. What, what is like PFP? Five... Oh yeah. So um, at freelancer.com, there's something called the preferred freelancer program and it is the top one percent of freelancers on the platform and mm-hmm. essentially they're just the people that that have been there long enough to like increase their rank really have a good a good standing on the site and they do better work than than most of the freelancers so that we put them aside we charge them a slightly different fee and we, we give them a different fee system so they don't have to pay fees up front on their projects they pay them after because on the site you normally pay up front honestly again on a whim because like i had no experience doing this mm-hmm. i just said sure Right. I asked one question and I'm like, will I be solely responsible for this? And the answer was yes. So I just took, yeah, I took over. It seemed to make sense. So I did that for about a year and, you know, we did made some like pretty major progress. We like cleaned it up pretty aggressively. And then I learned something in this, in the company though, is that like as a recruiter, I had a lot of good ideas. I also was very vocal about reporting them. So you know how we have daily stats at the company's daily stats. I guess I should talk, speak to everyone. We have this internal thread, the company stats every mm-hmm. day. And the CEO would always respond. Like he would always reply all to everyone and all these daily stats when he replied. Mm-hmm. So I thought this was normal, right? I thought everyone was supposed to reply all to all emails. Mm-hmm. So I got in the habit of replying all to all my daily stats replies instead of like directing problems to people. Mm-hmm. And I learned people that actually could impact what the business was doing were product managers, right? Like it didn't matter if your idea was amazing. If you were a recruiter, no one gave a shit, right? Am I just mm-hmm. this? Is it okay? I'll, That's I'll okay. Hold back. No, we'll we'll yeah, keep it unfiltered. That's okay. 
Okay. Um, it has to be organic. <laughs> yeah. So I um so when I, when I took over the PFP, I was able to have a lot more input into what was happening. Mm-hmm. And like Matt became Matt is a CEO. Matt became obsessed with the PFP, and so through that, and like I grew it to like a certain percentage of revenue, and um, it was really quite important to the business. I still realized that like I still didn't have the voice that I was trying to get, you know. Mm-hmm. And I so I knew that the only way to do that would be to become a product manager. Mm-hmm. Like it's the only way to really impact what we're doing. And I really felt like I had the information from being a recruiter and just from understanding things a little bit differently than all the other product managers, uh, just because of my background, to make mm-hmm. a significant difference. So I had a meeting with our VP and I asked him, like, what do I have to do to become a PM? And I didn't think he thought I was serious mm-hmm. because his response was like, um, yeah, like learn to code and build me a website. And like, you're basically a PM now, but like learn to code and then you can be a PM. And I was like, okay, oh, no, learn SQL, learn to code and then build me a website. So over the course of the next few months, I learned SQL, which mm-hmm. by the way, is the greatest thing on earth. And then I learned to code. So I learned like basic JavaScript stuff. And then I learned a little bit of Python. And then I built Adam a website that I think is still live somewhere. I forgot what the, the URL is. It's it's up there somewhere though. And l- the rule was I couldn't use it. I had to literally build it completely from scratch, you know? And mm-hmm. getting so, into the HTML and CSS and putting a JavaScript into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't use any frameworks. Like I had to just do completely from from nothing. So that happened actually at the end of last year. And it was actually super unfortunate how it all played out because I sent it over to Adam, or I had not sent it to the VP yet, but this, Matt was visiting, the CEO was visiting, mm-hmm. and he just offhandedly asked me if I've done any of our like PM training, and I said, not yet, and then I showed him the website. He had no idea what it was about, no context, no idea that it was a challenge, no idea that I just learned to code, <laughs> and he <laughs> looked at my website, and he was like, this is the ugliest website I've ever seen. <laughs> and I was just like, and this is in front of the whole office. I'm not sure if you, if you were working here yet. It was embarrassing. So that, anyway, so after that, it was decided that I was moving into this into this position. You know, Matisse, who was the PM of all the client, client success stuff, was being moved to groups. I don't know if there was like a formal discussion, but one day he just called me and did a handover and said, this is now your problem and figured it out. So like quite literally, I got thrown into deep end. And then Matt and Adam said officially, like, you need, you need to launch this new product, uh, Freelancer Verified, and, you know, figure it out, basically looking after like three or four different products plus i had to launch a new product and that was my like first day on the job basically so you earned your way all the way up to the product management position within freelancer.com just because you wanted to be a bit more vocal and you wanted to make an impact for the product and what the services company was offering yeah i just wanted to have a significant voice in the direction of the business Mm-hmm. I wanted to be someone that said, like, we're doing this because this is a good business sense. I just thought that was important. So now you're a product manager. Do you think you get that autonomy? Are your decisions and the products you need to work on decided by the management? Interesting question. I'd say there's a little bit of both. Like, I feel that the things that I have to work on specifically, mm-hmm. I have a lot of autonomy for. Freelancer Verified, I had some autonomy for. Like, I had to push it out. I had to charge a certain amount of money, but everything else was more or less what I want to do, except for one recent possible change. Mm-hmm. But in exchange, I definitely got the voice that I was after. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a trade-off. Um, I what it taught me was actually to learn to pick your battles. Because mm-hmm. like you're like I, I forgot who I said this to, but I would say like you're trying to win the war, not the battle. And sometimes you have to make concessions with with a product for uh, for senior management just so that 
it's almost like there's no like vocal favor between you both where you're like, hey, mm-hmm. I'll do this. And then you guys will do this. And there seems to be a lot of like give and take. So a lot of negotiations. Yeah. And like learning to negotiate with senior management is probably the single most important thing that I think people need to learn because otherwise they're just going to tell you what to do. And if if they're wrong, because like they don't know, they don't have all the information, right? They just Mm -hmm. have like, you know, they have the 10,000 foot view of everything. And if you don't push back and say, no, we're not doing this, this is a bad idea, then you'll fail. They'll blame you. And then. Okay. So you've had many, many years of sales experience. How do you think your sales experience translates into a PM role or people who are in sales and they want to move into a product role? How can they translate that experience into this role? I think being in sales taught me something that I think is lacking in some, maybe some product management philosophies and schools Mm -hmm. is that like the role of product manager is solely to drive revenue, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of product managers that are that like prioritize things like user experience over revenue, mm-hmm. which is like like not to be mistranslated. It is user experience is extremely important, but the goal is to increase revenue, right? So whatever whatever you're after, um, that's what you, what's what your focus is. And my experience in sales was, you know. That was all I thought about, right? It was like drive revenue for the company, drive revenue for myself. And being on commission for seven or eight years, it's really something that you're very conscious of is like how much money is this making this month? So you're saying that customer experience and revenue are not necessarily correlated. Uh, There's a general belief that usually customer experience drives revenue just because better customer experience means most customer or more customers will be using the product or services you're offering. So I would say I was referring more to user experience, not customer experience, which I think are completely different. Maybe they're not different, but basically I think at least from my experience with product managers and like Mm -hmm. I hadn't know, I didn't really know what a product manager was until I joined this company, right? Is that Mm -hmm. a lot of our, a lot of product managers that I've worked with obsess more about minutia around UX than they do about like making big changes that will bring more money in. Okay. And you mentioned the first product you were working on, the preferred freelancer program, and it was a huge success. Uh, what metrics were you using to track success for that project? So the metrics that I used to track the PFP success was percentage of our total marketplace. So we have something called GMV, so gross marketplace value. Um, so I would just try to get it to as close to 40 or 50% as possible until I was actually told that if we get it to 50%, we're going to destroy the platform because like all of our, basically we're, we're putting too many eggs in one basket, right? The PFP is only a few thousand people. So if mm-hmm. we're generating half of our revenue from a few thousand people, it's particularly dangerous. So I had to scale back at some point, but the metric I was after was percentage of marketplace. Okay. And what was the impact did you notice by scaling back? Do you think it was better for the platform if you in retrospect? Yeah. Like the thing is, I found that you know, this is like one of those negotiations is Matt wanted, Matt, the CEO, wanted the PFP to grow to thousands more people. And mm-hmm. that really devalued what it was supposed to be, like the elite top 1%. You know, by limiting it, I capped it at 2000 for a while. And then instead of adding more people in, like I decided that if you're going to remove, if you're going to add someone in, you have to remove someone else, you know? So mm-hmm. you would you would go in and let, like you it had to be 2000 and you found this amazing freelancer and he's going to make us a ton of money. Let's put him in the program. He's going to help a lot of our clients complete their projects, find the worst freelancer in the PFP and kick him out. Is it based on scales or is it just cumulative 2,000? No, it's 2,000 people total. 
and mm-hmm. I and like it's based on a lot of things for the freelancers to get in. There was more than just their rank and rank and skill because like it was pretty easy to, to increase your rank without being the best. So it was about like trying to cohesively communicate with people and represent yourself while finish your work in a timely fashion and be reliable. And, you know, within that, there's different segments of people because you got to worry about the less expensive projects. You have to worry about someone that wants to hire like a big agency that's Mm -hmm. less expensive. So you have to just have pockets of talent for every single potential buyer. Mm -hmm. Moving on to Freelancer Verified, which you mentioned earlier, is that the most recent product you've launched? Yep. So can you tell us a bit about Freelancer Verified? Mm -hmm. Um, So... Freelancer Verified is effectively the same thing as you see on like Instagram or Twitter, mm-hmm. except the process to get it is quite a lot more stringent. And, you know, the step that we, we 40-step process to to gain entry into the program, there's a video interview. And essentially what we're doing is we're, we're really trying to, to ensure that the people that are working on our platform mm-hmm. are legit. So like we have... 45 million users and it's not impossible to spoof things a little bit you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. i think it's important for a giant marketplace to provide as much trust as possible so that someone can log on to the website look at someone and hire them and feel very comfortable around hiring them you know okay Uh, how do you think the competitors are approaching this problem like fiverr or upwork this is the fun part actually is I don't think they are like they they do video interviews and stuff. They they actually like they have like a similar verification system. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they're aware of this issue. To be honest with you, they they deal with it at a very surface level. But to solve the problem, you have to to focus like very grand granularly. Is that a word? Like mm-hmm. really, you have to really dig in to find out. Yeah, so how did you or your team figure out what their exact problem was? What was that discovery process like? Uh, reason I'm asking this question is because a lot of the times product managers or entrepreneurs, they try to solve a problem, which you know seems to be a problem on the surface, but they didn't really dig in. They don't really apply the five why principles. And in all defense, like it's really hard to apply the principle in real life. It's easy to say than to do. So how did you go about that? How, how did you really dig into the problem? I was lucky enough that I managed a group of amazing freelancers to know close and like after so many months, I guess, of being a recruiter, working with our clients, I kind of understood the space for both of our users, right? And because marketplaces have two sides of users, you have Mm -hmm. to always consider both sides when you're making changes. So I knew it was a problem Mm -hmm. originally because I just experienced it. I, Mm -hmm. someone just didn't check out and I was like, oh, like first you feel kind of jilted and then you start wondering what percentage of our clients are running into these people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the product managers get into the role of product without going through the customer success or customers facing side of things first. What advice would you say, you know, like people starting directly as a product versus like, you know, going through the customer success role or perhaps, you know, you're switching companies from one to another and you directly move to product to product role. How do you think, you know, they can better go down to the trenches to really understand what the users are facing as a problem so they can build better products? If you are taking on a new product or you're an existing PM and you have never talked to your customers, mm-hmm. do whatever you can. Like I interview customers day, like a couple of week at least. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I actually, 
in the PFP, I've probably met 500 of the 2,000 people, right? Um, I've had like video, yeah, I've had like video chats with them. I know some of their family's names, right? Like I've never forgot their like brother's name who works also. They have a bunch of kids. I know where they live. Like I check in on them to make sure they're they're like, their families are safe. Um, One time someone sent me a, they FedExed me a, I love Indian sweets. Mm -hmm. And I had a freelancer FedEx me Indian sweets like from Calcutta. That's super sweet. Yeah, I think it's a lot about relationship building with the people that are using your platform. And I, I don't think, I think people are just scared to connect. Mm-hmm. I think people are like, oh, they don't want to talk to me. It's going to be weird. But like coming from someone that would call people every single day, like 30 or 40 people a day to buy something. Mm-hmm. The idea of just like calling someone to ask them how their experience was and what problems they're having is so different. It's like people would love to talk to you. You know, mm-hmm. everyone's interested in giving you some feedback. If not, then you'll find someone that is like, it's just if you have the means in your company, and I think these days everyone does to connect with your users, like at least try to do one interview a week. You know, it's only like, it's going to take you less than an hour. Mm -hmm. So the problem that you identified that kind of like, you know, was behind the freelancer verified program, was it through one of these interviews or was it more like an internal retrospection of the team to see what's missing from the platform? It was kind of like an, it was a non-interview, but it was external. And it was related to an enterprise that we were working with and mm-hmm. something like went down and like they, they actually weren't aware of what was happening. They were just confused as to why something was a certain way. And okay. then when I dug into the, the issue, I found the issue and I was like, oh, my God, like this is terrible. This is like this is like a ticking time bomb. So mm-hmm. and then like we spent we've probably spent. I don't know. I guess I would say we would have spent at least six months in the discovery phase, you know, because we, we weren't actually like originally planning to do this. It just the longer we spent in discovery, we mm-hmm. found the problem grew deeper than we originally expected. Mm-hmm. So you spent six months in discovery phase. A lot of the time, entrepreneurs when, or like product managers, when they want to build a new product, I'm not sure if they would spend six months to build something because there's a pressure of like, you know, building something quickly to get to the market. Um, before the competitor or for a lot of the people, you know, those entrepreneurs, they don't really have the time because they have this idea they want to build a business plan and they want to build a product just to get investors money. So how would you like, you know, encourage people or like, you know, how would you advise people to actually take the time and kind of slow down to really understand that problem? So there's a quote that I always try to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. I think it's Abraham Lincoln. I have no idea if it is. Sorry, whoever made this quote. But it's if I had eight hours to cut down a tree, I would spend seven hours sharpening my axe. Mm-hmm. And that really speaks to how to solve problems, you know? And I think it's really looking for to be efficient. You know, spending more time understanding the problem means to spend less time executing and less time iterating on new solutions. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a lot that of makes pressure. Sense. Yeah. And it's, it's you gotta find balance. There's balance everywhere. Like I was already managing a bunch of other things. So this wasn't an urgent problem yet. And we were able to like operationally sort of handle this problem. Mm -hmm. It just eventually became a need. Okay. Another interesting challenge that a lot of entrepreneurs or product managers face while launching a product is a pricing. One, you know, what price users will pay for it or, you know, what price is good for the keeping the competition in mind. So how did you go about determining the right price for Freelancer Verified? If I remember correctly, I believe it's $99 per user, correct? Yeah. 
It is. So pricing is interesting. And I was actually thinking about pricing a lot today. So I'm going to touch upon what I was thinking about today. But first, we chose mm-hmm. the pricing because we wanted it to have like pricing and value are correlated. And sometimes something being more expensive is more beneficial to it because it is a more premium product. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, given the nature of the problem we're trying to solve, we wanted it to not necessarily be accessible to everyone. We wanted there to be friction between the people that would try to maybe spoof it if they could versus the people that were serious. And mm-hmm. and honestly, so it's, what I was thinking about today is I was at the park and I was looking at my shoes. And I'm the, the kind of person that like constantly looks at things and thinks about how they're sold to people. Mm-hmm. And so these are, I have a pair of black Converse. They're all black. And then I, I said to my, my girlfriend that it's so cool that they make all black Converse. And then we got into this discussion about how Converse has been the coolest shoe for what, 30 years now? And they don't do any advertising, you know? And everyone owns a pair of Converse almost. Like everyone in Vancouver at least owns some Converse. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, I was like, man, they're also like one of the cheapest shoes you can buy. And so like you end up buying a couple of pairs. So everyone has a couple of pairs. Therefore, they're cool because everyone has them. And they're like a staple. Anyway, so it got me really thinking about pricing and wondering what the sweet spot of pricing is. Because let's say a pair of Converse was $300, okay? Mm-hmm. People would still buy them, but less people would have them. So you'd probably end up selling selling less of them. So pricing is really a sensitive topic. And I think for us, we are looking at, you know, because of the amount of operational work involved in each application, like mm-hmm. we had to hire, we had to hire more people for this. Like our team doubled in size just to accommodate the applications. So mm-hmm. we had to find a balance between, you know, revenue and and cost. I feel like I just, just skirted around that answer. But mm-hmm. it's, there's so many things going on to decide pricing. And you know, there's like senior management says they want a certain price because they they think it's it's worth this. And then you got to negotiate back and forth. But like the price was originally much higher. So you know, I feel okay. like. $99 is actually not so bad. And you know what? Like I would, I'm not like completely opposed to it going down eventually, mm-hmm. you know, after really what I believe is the MVP stage, maybe it's a learning we take away. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm just really cautious about making quick changes to pricing because you can never go back. Like once you cut a, cut a price down once, it's officially, there's a point of no return. You can never just increase the price again. Are you keeping track of how many people are turning away this opportunity just because of pricing? Yes. So I do customer interviews with the people that refuse to buy it. Okay. And, and what were the other things you've learned from those interviews other than just the pricing for the product? Any interesting learnings? Actually, yeah. So pricing is, I'd say, the biggest turnoff for most people. But like, that's that's fair. Like, things cost money and people don't mm-hmm. want to spend it. Like, that's, that's a reality, right? That shouldn't be like an immediate red flag. But I found that there was a, a group of people that didn't want to buy it because mm-hmm. like, well, basically like you'll win more projects if you have this thing and they just don't want more work. Just flat out. They're like, no, man, I have lots of work. If you can build me something that gives me more hours in a day, then I'll buy it. But I don't need to get more work. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. People who are good at their jobs, they don't need extra incentives. Yeah. And if you already have a full workload, like you're unlikely to like try to double your workload or make more money if you if you can't handle the work. So mm-hmm. an interesting trend which has been popping up is just pouring in lots and lots of money in social media or digital marketing for, you know, product or e-commerce businesses to run. What are your thoughts around that? Do you think that's sustainable for to like start a business that way? 
Can you explain a little bit more what you're asking? Yeah. For example, for a lot of no-code platforms and storefronts like Shopify or Etsy or other competitors of those uh, storefronts, like they help or allow people to build a lot of businesses quickly. You know, there are platforms like e-commerce or educational platforms that are out there that anyone can build for like $1,000. And then they spend a lot of money in just marketing to get those users. Do you think that's a sustainable way to like run a business or like, you know, amateur entrepreneurs? Oh, yeah. So... I know that Upwork basically dumps all their revenue back into marketing and they're not profitable at all. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's about finding balance. I think these days people have just gotten to the point where they're willing to spend as much money on advertising without trying to like really maximize their advertising. Like mm-hmm. from someone that has been paying attention to advertising for so long and really knows the history of advertising mm-hmm. is I think people are looking for volume. So they'll spend more money to get more hits without trying to find a better way to convert and really mm-hmm. focusing on like creating better advertising. But I don't think it's sustainable. You know, it's, it's eventually it's a race to the bottom, right? Everyone is just going to do the exact same thing. No one's doing anything unique. And if you notice, like, there's a lot of companies that come out these days that do something different. You know, mm-hmm. like, I don't know if I have anyone that comes to mind right away, but there are companies that are successful without doing this. And that means that there's a lot of opportunity for others to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. From all your experience learning about advertising and sales, what advice would you give to people uh, who aren't trying to sell a product or service? So... I would suggest spending as much time as you can on reading about copywriting, just because no matter what product you're making, Mm -hmm. right, like the products don't get made, but you need to be able to sell the product. And like a lot of people will have copywriters that will write their copy for them. But I think the copywriter does understand the problem and the solution the same way as the product manager. So they should be the one at least having a significant input into all advertising copy around the product. And by learning about copywriting, you are able to take over a lot of that responsibility and therefore you are able mm-hmm. to sell the the product better. Like you'll do better than any copy because copywriters will have to actually learn about the problem and the solution and they'll ideate and they'll figure some stuff out. But like if you can't do it yourself and you're hooped. Uh, there's a book called um, The Adweek Copywriter's Handbook by a guy named Joe Sugarman. Joe Sugarman's one of my heroes. And he basically, what he did was he would just like buy all these random things and make catalogs and he would write all the copy in the catalogs and he was mm-hmm. sending catalogs to people and they would buy his random things he sold like a like a two million dollar plane in a like magazine ad he was like he's like the, the godfather of copywriting so is that uh, your inspiration for all the copywriting experience yeah for sure i've read his book a few times his it's interesting because like you have to actually balance it out with reading newer copywriting books because a lot of his his ideas are around long copy and like he would write like full page copywriting ads and he would follow this thing called the slippery slope where you basically like the only reason of sentence one is to get them to read sentence two and so on. And you know, a lot of my copywriting portfolio is really long copy. And I think long, long copy converts a lot better than, than like short copy because it engages you. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important. Um, and like the conversion rates for the verified landing page are, are sweet. They're like, like our target market is obviously people that have earned money on the site. And I think mm-hmm. the conversion rate there is like 4%, which is decent. If you've earned more than like a thousand bucks, which is like the core market, it's a thousand or 10,000 bucks. Like our core market converts at 12%. Super you impressive. Know? It's not bad. So that's actually probably the thing I'm happiest the most about. So <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah, read about copywriting. That's, that's my advice. You've been in product for many years now after like several years in sales. Are you reading more like product management related books now? Or are you still reading copywriting books or like sales? Like, well, what's your like preferred topic of reading now being in a product management role? So my preferred 
topic of reading is really just business books. Like I don't read a lot of like specific product management books. Mm -hmm. I do like reading books by like CEOs and founders that are just overall how to like grow a business. Like one of my favorite books is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which just like goes through and shows you what it takes for a business to start and finish basically, you know, like get to whatever state they are at now. And I think you learn more about from those kinds of books from the the founders of the companies, the CEOs, the guys that run the company, then you will mm-hmm. people that write product management books. I also think that people that are writing PM books are just trying to like write a book to make some cash and like make mm-hmm. decent PMs. But like the CEOs are the books that you should be reading because CEOs are PMs. They're just the PMs of their entire company, you know, and a PM is like a little baby CEO. So <laughs> it's I think it's important to look at big business books. And I think that's where people should really spend their time reading. Mm-hmm. That's a really good advice. I know you're also an amazing artist and you do run your gallery nights as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? How did you conceptualize that? And if you use any like, you know, product mindset to run those gallery nights in any way? Man, yes. And the crossover between product management and my art has been so beneficial. So my last show, for example, I had no prices on any of the work. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so like there's takeaways here. Like I realized that if people are going to a gallery, I feel like the price ruins the experience. I don't know why. I just feel like a good portion of people may not be in the market to be buying art, but they want to look at some art. And like the price kind of impacts how you feel about the art. Mm -hmm. And then Spencer, who you know, went to an art show and told me that he was looking at a painting after he went to my show with no pricing. And he was like, oh, this painting's cool. And it was like 400 bucks. He's like, ah, it's only 400 bucks. Must suck, right? (laughs) So I I don't think I'm going to have pricing. But I also sold less art at my last show than my show before that where I had pricing. But I don't Mm -hmm. think those I don't think those two things are related. What I also did is I said, if you want to purchase the painting, here's the link. Go to my website. And then I set my website homepage that day to my store. So you just go to my website, you go straight to the store. And Mm -hmm. I found out where everyone was clicking. I found out what paintings were the most interesting to people. And like, I was actually surprised because there was a painting that I didn't think was that great, got more interest than everything else. And I think a couple of people got to the cart. They were going to buy it. They didn't. So the data I got from that was was pretty interesting. Um, I'm sure having a price on the painting would have skewed that results on your landing page. Totally. Right. And then I wouldn't know what art people like. And interesting. Um, also, I check my website's analytics every single day, mm-hmm. even though like I don't get that much. I really don't get that much traffic. But that's my own fault. That's something that I'm working on. But because I'm now consciously thinking about product management stuff all the time, I do think about my art very much more like a product, which it is, right? I am effectively the product manager for simonfugil.com. My job is to mm-hmm. convert as many people that go to my landing page and sell my art. And I'm also the person that produce, produces the product. I'm just in charge of the entire product life cycle, you know? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So when's your next art show? Um, it would be pending the um, pandemic. It would be July 24th next year. And rebuilding my site right now. It's not totally finished, but you can go there at simonfugil.com and check out some stuff. Yeah, there's some, there's some new new stuff in the works and new ideas. So I'll probably be a lot more vocal about the changes coming up soon. Well, thanks, Simon, for the time. I think that's all the time we had today. I really appreciate your thoughts and you sharing your experience today. Would love to have you back. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.